Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, I didn't get no bad feeling. Or else I probably would have never left it. I left to take them home, and then I went home to shower and come back. I was there within 45 minutes. It was like 8.40 when I got back for her. It wasn't that long. Nobody could have known, but if I stayed like he asked, it could not happen or we both did. I lost two years of my life after this happened. I blamed myself. Do you ever want to be arrest for a murder of William Moore? Who is the gas station attendant? But you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. The first step of a reinvestigation of any case has to involve a second look at the original investigation. In this week's episode, we're going to do just that. As you all know, we moved this week, and things have been a bit hectic. We've struggled with phone lines, lack of internet, and just a good old case of too much to do and not enough time. My plan for this week was to dig into a prison gang that was roaming the streets of Bloomington in 1991 but that's going to have to wait until we are fully operational. In the meantime, we're going to keep marching on with a look at the original investigation, followed by a short interview with someone who we've all been waiting to hear from, Danny Hartley. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're going to walk through a series of police reports that were all created on the night of Bill Little's murder. We're going to start off today on page 3 of Jeff Pilo's supplemental report. The page begins with the words, Area Check. The first entry is Pilo's interview with Carlos and Juan Luna. I read from Carlos's statement a couple of weeks ago, but this is exactly what Pilo wrote in his report. Spoke to Juan and Carlos Luna. Both stated that at approximately 8.20 p.m., they observed a male exit the Clark station wearing a black coat and a black hat. His left hand was under the coat. He was carrying what appeared to be a cash drawer. Suspect went east around the building, then north towards the alley. Pilo talked to the boys that very night, and they told him then, that night, that they saw the suspect carrying the cash drawer. 
Note that there's no mention of a trench coat in this initial statement, and I want to believe that Pilo would be smart enough not to tell them that the insert was missing from the drawer. You just don't want to give that kind of information to a witness. But even though 222 feet is a long distance to distinguish such a small detail, it seems like too much of a coincidence that the insert actually was taken and the boys said that they saw the man holding the insert. There's also no real reason for them to make this detail up. So I have to conclude that with young eyes, the boys did actually see the man carrying the insert under his jacket. And also note that in this description, there's no mention of the jeans the man was wearing. To Zach's point on last week's follow-up, it's not really something a person would likely notice. In the first interview, the question was likely, what was he wearing? Only prompting the boys to relay what they actually recall seeing. As opposed to the second interview where detectives were asking much more specific questions, like, what kind of pants was he wearing? And that's when your brain will start to fill in the details. Moving on, Pilo wrote, spoke to a Jim Osborne, stated he had gone to Clark Station around 7.45, bought a pack of cigarettes. Attendant was speaking to two white males. One was short with a black Harley t-shirt, second was tall with long blonde hair. Now this was about 20 minutes before Jerry Gutierrez was in the station when he saw the man with the scar on his chin. Next, Pilo writes, spoke with a Robert Kuhlman, white car, he was parked several houses away. Very concerned about the station attendant. Wanted to know if he had been killed. Also wanted to know if the attendant was male. The next, we have an entry that's heavily redacted. A man with the last name Brown, quote, saw two people walking up the alley behind the Clark station. Alley runs east and west between East Holm and Linden. Also saw a brown four-door sedan parked at East Holm and Empire. Brown believed the car to be a Buick. Brown observed this at 8.15 p.m. End quote. As we move along, you're going to hear more about a brown or tan sedan. Now, East Holm Street is the residential street that I mentioned last week on the follow-up episode. When Mike and I walked the crime scene, it seemed like the most likely place for someone to park a getaway car. This so looks this like is, an alley. This is the alley. Yep. That makes sense. It's a logical. If they were on foot, it's a lot most logical escape route. And one of the witnesses we're going to try to track down today said he saw, I think two of them said, some people, one guy said he saw two people in the store walking out with what appeared to be a cash register in their hand and then heading towards the alley. And then another person said that he saw two guys running down the alley. So I wonder, let's walk down here and see where this goes. What a smart way to, if you were going there with the intention of robbing it, you could easily park your car here. None of the witnesses would see your vehicle and just go in through the alley and then come back out to the alley, get in your car. Mm-hmm. Or even if you were on foot, I mean, once you get back here, you just go any direction. Right. What's her name on the street? East Holm. 
East Holm Avenue. And this is all residential, so this kind of makes more sense for a method of egress. You know, that's a those are commercial streets that there's a lot of traffic on both Empire and the side street. Yeah. And there's a lot more exposure. I mean, you're stuck on a sidewalk and surrounded mm. by buildings and traffic. Right. Yeah, I bet whoever did it, I bet they just parked their fucking car right there. Makes sense. Because even if people see the car there, it's most people aren't going to connect. Right. You know, you're only, what, 150 yards away, but it seems like a, a different world yeah. over there at the gas station and over here in this residential neighborhood. Far enough away that no one over there seeing them get in the car would have heard the gunshots or anything. Right. Mr. Brown's sighting of the two men in the alley and the car on East Home very well could be connected to Bill's murder. The report continues on with the door-to-door canvassing. The addresses are redacted, but we have eight saw-nothings and three no-one homes after Mr. Brown's report. And that's the end of Pilo's supplement. The next one we're going to cover is a supplement written by Officer Newton. He writes... On Sunday, March 31st, at approximately 8.18 p.m., Officer Newton responded to a holdup alarm at the Clark Oil at 802 East Empire. Upon arrival, Officer Newton, with Officer Cook, searched an alley between Linden and East Holm from Empire to Emerson for the suspect and or evidence. After this search, Sergeant Cox and Sergeant O'Brien assigned Officer Newton and Officer Pilo to conduct a neighborhood canvas. Following is a list of homes Officer Newton contacted and the results. The first entry in Newton's report is completely redacted. No name or address, but a very interesting report nonetheless. Spoke to, redacted, at, redacted. They said that approximately five minutes before they heard sirens, they heard tire squealing in the area of the Clark Station, but they saw nothing. This interview was conducted in a parking lot in the southeast corner of Empire and Linden. That would be the credit union parking lot across the street from the gas station. And so, at this point, we have two witnesses who saw the actual killer leaving the station and heading towards the alley. A man that saw two people walking down the alley towards East Holm and saw a brown car parked on East Holm. And now we have someone who heard tires squealing in the area just five minutes before he heard the sirens. Now, keep in mind that neither Pilo or Williams approached the scene with their sirens on. The sirens that this person heard would have been the ambulance and the second wave of police response to the scene meaning that he heard the squealing tires right around the time that Pilo and Williams were entering the station, after the man in the black coat had fled the scene. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The rest of Noon's report is filled with home but heard nothings and not homes. So we're going to go ahead and move on to Detective Thomas's report. Thomas notes that when he arrived on scene, a second canvas of the neighborhood was ordered, specifically requesting officers to return to the houses where no one was home during the earlier door-to-door. And then he writes the following. While at the scene, Officer Williams, who was securing the business, advised me of a suspicious person walking amongst the crowd and pointed to him. The person in question was a white male, approximately five foot eight, medium build with shoulder-length dark hair. He was wearing a green corduroy ball cap that was worn with the bill towards the back. He was also wearing a black leather jacket with blue sweatshirt underneath, blue jeans, and white Reebok tennis shoes. We observed him walk across the street several times before I approached him and asked for identification. The suspicious male turned out to be Steve Hill. Steve worked the shift before Bill that day. Thomas was looking into Hill briefly, but Steve provided an alibi that checked out, so he was eliminated as a suspect pretty quickly. Hill was told about the shooting by his cousin, who lived near the station. He tried calling the station and then called the manager at home, but she wasn't available. So he went right to the scene to see what was going on. His shoes were collected into evidence, and he was cleared. Detective Thomas then returned to the scene to assist with the neighborhood canvas. Next, we have another supplemental report, this one written by Officer Clifford. In his report, after several nothing seen or herds, Clifford writes, Possible name of, redacted, answered the door and stepped back surprised that I was at the door. He answered my question but was very nervous while talking to me. He stated that he didn't see or hear anything. There was also another white male that I could see sitting watching TV, medium build, 5'10", with brown hair. And that's the end of Clifford's report. Then comes another report written by Officer Kraft. He wrote, While doing a neighborhood check after the robbery at the Clark Station at Empire and Linden, I spoke with a gentleman at, redacted, I asked him if he had seen anyone matching the given description. He stated that James Hummer, who lived at, redacted, matched the description. He stated that Hummer always wears a ball cap and a black or dark colored jacket and was approximately the same height as given. After a check through our computer, he was listed as 5'9", 155 pounds with brown eyes and black hair. Subject is a white male and from my past experience is very dangerous and is a mental subject. Then the report goes on to say, While at the crime scene, I spoke with a subject named Redacted, white male. While speaking with this subject, he first asked, quote, do you know who did this? When I said no, and then said to him, do you, he got very defensive and said no. He then asked three times if the guy was dead. Then he asked, where did he get shot at? When I said I did not know, he asked, did he get shot in the chest? The next supplemental report was written by an officer, Urban. About 8.30 p.m., March 31st, 1991, reporting officer received a phone call from Detective Rusty Thomas. He informed the reporting officer that there had been a shooting and an armed robbery at the Clark Station at Empire and Linden Street. Reporting officer drove straight to the scene, east on Emerson to Linden Street, south on Linden Street, where about halfway between Emerson to Empire, reporting officer caught up to a tan, brown, older model Dodge. This vehicle stopped, and reporting officer swung out around it. 
At this time, reporting officer noted that the license plate number was an odd combination of numbers and letters, not consistent with the Illinois format. This plate was a single letter followed by two alpha letters, then three numbers. As reporting officer was passing this vehicle, it struck reporting officer as a strange place for an out-of-state license plate to be. Reporting officer tried to catch the state on the plate as the reporting officer passed the vehicle. It was South Dakota. However, reporting officer was past the vehicle before catching the license plate number. Reporting officer drove to the scene and asked Sergeant Cox to get someone to check the two occupants out that were seen in the car. And Officer Sanders wrote a report that again addresses the Brown Buick. He's referring here to a man named Wiley Holt, who went into the police station to relay the events that he witnessed at the Clark station that night. Wiley entered the station just after 1 a.m. on the night of Bill's murder. From the report, Wiley says that he went to the Clark station at about 8.15 p.m. and pumped gas from the east side of the easternmost pump island. He said that he observed a brown four-door, possibly Buick, that was parked on the west side of the same pump island. After he had already gone inside, spoke with the attendant, and ate a candy bar, an unoccupied smaller brown car was parked near the building. Mr. Holt says that the brown, maybe Buick, parked at the same pump island as his, was occupied by a bearded male black driver and another subject with unknown sex or race. Mr. Holt said that he noticed the brown, maybe Buick, with the two occupants bore white plates with dark blue letters and or numerals. He says that he went downtown and heard of the robbery and shooting shortly thereafter. Wiley Holt says that his son, John Holt, a cab driver, informed him that Dwayne Dixon told John Holt that he had heard a shot or shots and saw a vehicle leave the scene at a high rate of speed. Sanders' report goes on to say that both Danny Martinez and Jerry Gutierrez were shown photo lineups at around 1 a.m. that night. We find in the report that Martinez identified two men, mugshot numbers BP6395 and BP6558. He stated, quote, it's between these two. Both resemble the suspect. And then Gutierrez also identified mugshot number BP6395 as the suspect that he saw in the station, the scarred man. He was shown the lineup twice, once by Officer Pilo and once by Officer Newton. The report reads, quote, I asked Gerardo if this was the suspect, and he answered in the affirmative, end quote. Both Danny Martinez and Jerry Gutierrez, the only two eyewitnesses who were actually on the gas station property and saw face-to-face the man believed to be the killer, just five hours after Bill's murder, both identified the same man. And the man that they both recognized in the pictures is not the man who was later convicted. The last section of these reports that I'm going to cover today is another supplement written by Officer Sanders on the morning after the murder. Sanders wrote, At about 9.40 in the morning on April 1st, I received one Panasonic cassette tape from his telephone answering machine. The tape contains a recorded message and a conversation between Ray Meekum and a caller that sounded as if he were an intoxicated white male. The call came at about 9.45 to 9.50 p.m. on the night before. Mr. Meekum answered the apparent wrong number call and interrupted the caller, who became upset and used profanity, but still thought he had the right number. The caller said to tell Gina that her boyfriend was dead. Mr. Meekum thought little of the call until the next morning when he read about the armed robbery and the homicide at the Clark station, 
and subsequently became aware that the victim had a girlfriend named Gina. I placed a tape on Lieutenant Emmett's desk at 10.05 a.m. as instructed by him. Now, this report isn't entirely accurate. It mentions a conversation between Mr. Meekham and the caller. It's actually, from what I can hear, just an answering machine message. It seems clear that the caller doesn't realize that he has the wrong number. This call came in about an hour and a half after Bill was killed, while the family was still on the scene. Here's the actual message. Oh, buddy, you sound like a fucking asshole. And I want to talk to Gina because her boyfriend just died. Yeah, motherfucker. The question is, did Bill actually have a girlfriend named Gina? I haven't seen anything in the report so far to indicate one way or another, other than Sanders' report that states, quote, Mr. Meekham thought little of the call until the next morning when he read about the armed robbery and homicide at the Clark Station and subsequently became aware that the victim had a girlfriend named Gina. And that's it. That's all I've seen in the report so far. However, luckily, I have a new source of information about Bill's life. His best friend, Danny Hartley. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Just yesterday, I finally got in touch with Danny. He agreed to get on the phone with me for an interview, but unfortunately, the phone connection was really bad. So Danny's kind of difficult to hear. But what I've done is cut together about five minutes of my 20-minute conversation with him so that you can at least hear Danny tell his own story. Would you describe you guys as best friends for the last couple of years of his life? Yeah, pretty much. I was using that gas station every day, so I know what his shit he was working. He was working for a lady that had kids, and he worked for her until it Easter Sunday. Yeah, you know, I, I saw that, that he was working for her. Do you know if that was, if he got stuck on that shift, or was he just doing her a favor? He was doing her a favor so she could be at home on Easter with her kids. Is that pretty typical of Bill's personality? Yes. So the people that I knew him or that spoke to me that knew Bill from high school all said that he was he was a funny guy. He was kind of a peacemaker. I mean, does that sound how, how would you describe Bill to me? I mean, I'd describe him pretty much to a team. Just a just a good guy, funny guy. Was he was he confrontational at all with anyone ever? No. Two weeks before he got killed within a different city and something happened and uh I pissed him off. He hit, he hit the house instead of hitting him, and I didn't allow that to happen, so I wouldn't hit the guy for him. Actually, I just came across uh, a note about it. Was it some some kid in Gibson City? Uh-huh. I had read some reports that Bill was was hanging out at some pool hall in Leroy and was doing some gambling. and Yeah, he did. He liked to gamble, but he didn't have no debts. If he had debts, it wasn't big enough to kill him. Just a little. So I think somebody had given the police a report that said that he he might have owed somebody like forty bucks. You think that's about the amount that he might have owed anyone? Maybe, yeah. Well, much over that. So, what about? Did he ever talk to you about his mom? Told police 
that he there was a string of robberies going on at at Leroy's at a place called I think Molly's. Does that ring a bell? She, she had told police that he knew who did it and was was going to to tell the police about it. Did he ever talk to you about that? No, I don't think that was. I don't think that was true. I don't remember nothing about it. I mean, everybody said that you know Bill just smoked a little pot back in the day, but there were a couple of reports that said that he had started doing uh, cocaine and maybe had some. They thought maybe this was a drug debt. Do, do you know anything about that? Is any of that accurate? No, I mean, he just smoked a little bit of weed, and he, and he tried cocaine, but he didn't do cocaine, and it wasn't, it wasn't part of his life. So he, he did smoke a little bit of weed. Right. The only risk factors that I've been able to identify for Bill were the fact that that he had maybe a gambling debt, maybe some drug debt, and maybe this thing in Leroy at the, for those robberies, but you don't think any of those really amounted to much of anything, really? No. Another thing I want to ask you about from, from back then, um, we had a, an FBI profiler come on the show last week and look at the case and try to, to, to profile who might have done this. And one question that came up was he had asked if there was any kind of like a like a group, a gang or anything around in the in the early 90s about the time of the death. And I had heard in a couple of police interviews that I've read people talking about a gang called the the Northsiders. Do you, do you know anything about the Northsiders? Is that a real thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a prison gang that was brought to the streets of Bloomington and uh, just never been brought out of prison, but yeah. Did um what were what were the North was it was it like a motorcycle group or what what what, what were the Northsiders? The White Pride Prison Gang is what it was. The White Pride Prison Gang, you said. Yep. Did they have much of a reputation for any violence or anything like this? Yeah, they did, but not 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 like I know you were there that night. Can you can you can you walk can you walk me through what your interactions were and what happened that night? Any, I usually help them close, so we go out after that. But uh, that night, I had friends in the car with me, and he wanted me to stay. And I told him I was going to go drop them off, go shower, and I'd be right back. And he asked me not to leave to stay, and didn't say why. Did you get the feeling when he asked you to to stay? I mean, at, at the time, did it feel like he was worried about something, or was it just like, "Hey, man, I'm I don't want to be here alone"? Well, I didn't get no bad feeling, or else I probably would have never left him. I lost two years of my life after this happened. I blamed myself. Nobody could have known, but if I had stayed like he asked, it could not happen, or we both did. And it was like 8.40 when I got back for around. It wasn't that long. I left to take them home, and I went home to shower and come back. I was there within 45 minutes. And when you got back, the police were already there? Yep. So you found out right then and there on the scene who to, was it Bill's mom or dad that told you what happened? My stepmom and dad. When I asked him what Bill was, they told me he was dead, and I told him he was lying to him. Just like it was yesterday. The phone line was so bad that Danny and I continued our conversation via text message. And so far, he's been very helpful. 
After coming across the answering machine message about Gina's boyfriend dying, I asked Danny if Bill was dating anyone named Gina. Danny said that he doesn't know anyone named Gina. But he himself, Danny, had an ex-girlfriend at the time named Jenny, not Gina. After hearing this, I went back and listened to the tape again. The report says that the man is saying he wants to talk to Gina. But could he actually be saying Jenny? Oh, buddy, you sound like a fucking asshole. And I want to talk to Gina because her boyfriend just died. Yeah, motherfucker. The investigation continues next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com, or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And you can even follow Mike at MBussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been... Truth and justice.